0: Um, Why don't we open our Bibles to the Gospel Mark is where we're at and uh, Gospel Mark chapter 14. I'll let you guys know a little bit about what we're going to be doing today and then we're going to be going over the next few weeks and really, uh, really next several months is uh, we're back into the Gospel Mark. We'll be in the Gospel Mark going up to Easter and on Easter, obviously, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and that will actually be chapter 16 of the Gospel Mark, which means that we will finish uh, the Gospel Mark on Easter. And so that being said... Uh, two things you need to know about Easter is, one, uh, it's going to be at the PAC this year. So up at Cal Poly at the PAC and uh, the Performing Arts Center, if you're trying to figure out what the PAC means. And uh, it's actually a great location. We're excited about it. this year is uh, we're going to be able to, again, unite our, all of our services together in one big service. And so uh, some of you, we realize, because it also falls during the same season of Cal Poly's uh, spring break, we realize that there's going to be a lot of people gone. Um, but what we're encouraging you guys to think about is maybe consider, uh, use this as an opportunity. If you are planning on being gone because maybe that's your spring break, maybe uh, prayerfully consider being able to be there, inviting your family, maybe coming back, making a slow a hub to come back to celebrate Easter with us. If you are planning on being here, uh, what we would do is really encourage you to consider bringing someone, inviting some friends, people that you know. Uh, the reality is God puts every single one of you guys in the lives of people that maybe don't know Jesus. Every one of us, God has given us what I like to call a sphere of influence. And that sphere of influence can be squandered uh, or it can be used in a way that's very powerful uh, for God, by God's power, for the purpose of his kingdom. So think about who's in that sphere of influence, uh, maybe who God has strategically placed you in those people's lives, in that sphere of influence to be able to invite, to come. Uh, Easter happens to be one of those times that uh, most people in America... Uh, will consider going to church one or two times out of a year, Easter and then obviously Christmas. So uh, prayerfully consider who that might be. And my challenge to you is ask God for boldness because I realize sometimes that can be tough, um, asking, inviting people to, to come to church. Uh, and the, sometimes the reasons are is because we're afraid of failure. In other words, they're going to shut you down and now you're going to be marked as like the Jesus freak. Um, or we're afraid of success. They actually might say yes And they might get saved, and now that young Christian might actually need someone to help them along in their walk with Jesus, and you're like, ah, I don't have time for that. And so, don't be afraid of failure, don't be afraid of success, look at it as a mission opportunity, that God has placed you as a missionary in a certain group of people's lives to live as a missionary for the gospel. So, consider that, think about who that might be, who those people might be in your life. So, Gospel Mark chapter 14 is where we're at this morning, and I'll tell you real quickly what we're going to be looking at, and then we'll get to work understanding what's happening here in this great chapter. uh, This is the final few days of Jesus' life. He is in a garden, uh, Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has just gone through this whole uh, intense season of prayer, uh, and I say season meaning maybe a couple hours of prayer, intense prayer, where he basically resigns himself, gives himself over to the Father. Uh, In spite of the great, tremendous uh, sense of perhaps perplexity or fear that Jesus may have. Maybe that might be too strong of a word. But the reality of what Jesus is facing is something, uh, it's enough to unravel Jesus. And yet Jesus pulls through. He submits himself to the will of the Father. And then what we see transpiring now is Jesus is going to be betrayed, and then Jesus will be arrested. And this is sort of the narrative of the life of Jesus. And what I want to do, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work, and really try to understand what this narrative, what this particular passage of Jesus' arrest and betrayal had to do with not only our lives, but also the bigger picture of God's kingdom advancing or moving forward in this world, in spite of in spite of opposition, in spite of the religious system coming to Jesus, arresting Jesus, using a brute force, basically this uh, group of thugs arresting Jesus. And yet, in spite of the fact that Jesus is betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas, we'll look at that in a second, in spite of the fact that Jesus is arrested by a bunch of thugs using brute force, at the end of the day, none of it hindered Jesus' ultimate purpose. In fact, all of it, moved Jesus' purpose forward, and all of the other rest, who thought that they were advancing their own kingdoms, their own causes, in the end, lost. Judas lost. The religious leadership lost. They lost their temple. They lost everything. And so, I'm going to read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Uh, So why don't you guys open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We'll pick it up around verse 43, going down to about verse 52, it says this, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with a crowd, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard, and when he came, he went to them, uh, went to the one once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him, and they laid hands on him, and they seized him. But the one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus then said to them, Have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I, was I not with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled that they left him and they fled. Verse 51, it says, And then a young man followed him and with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. And he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. God, we ask you right now that you just help us understand what this all has to say. Why this story was given for us 2,000 years later to read, to understand, to get a little bit of a glimpse into the life of Jesus. Uh, So God, I pray that you would help us understand what it looks like to live according to your kingdom. God, we confess that a lot of ways we are confused in more ways than than one. And God, what we need is clarity. What we need is a glimpse or a vision of who you are and what your kingdom is all about. God, that it would change us. We want to be changed. We want to be people that live like you, Jesus, that are truly transformed, not just externally, not just following certain ideas or ethics or methods or morals. But God, we want to be truly changed people that have the ability, have the power by the Holy Spirit to change other people so help us, we pray. Help us to be a church that embodies this, that lives this. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to jump right in. And if you uh, were following along that story, one of the things that you probably may have noticed is that there's a lot of different uh, characters in this story. And I think what Mark intends for us as we read it is to really be a little bit familiar with the cast of characters. And I think Mark adds the cast of characters because he wants us to some degree identify with them or try to put ourselves at least into some placement in the story. And the cast is pretty broad, but I think there's at least three things that can be said about each one of them. The first uh, that we'll take a look at is the one who betrayed. It's Judas, obviously. Second, we'll take a look at those who, uh, those who ruled by the sword. And there's, this is a little bit complex. It gets a little bit uh, uh, kind of confusing to some degree because the people that we would suspect that are ruled by the sword uh, actually that list gets broadened. In other words, we can't just simply say uh, the bad guys have the black hats, they're the ones that rule by the sword, and the white guys, are uh, the guys with the white hats are the good guys, they're the ones that aren't ruled by the sword. Uh, the story gets a little bit more nuanced than that, and we'll break that down in a second. And then the last thing we'll take a look at is those who get away. Because as we're told at the end of the story is that there's a group of people that actually end up departing, leaving, getting out from underneath this really intense trial in this really dark scenario there in the garden of gethsemane so the first thing we'll take a look at is the one who betrayed obviously in verses 43 to 45 we see that this is judas so i'll kind of break this down there's not really not a lot to be said about judas here other than the fact that judas is a guy that really we don't want to emulate he's the type of guy that most of us if you ever had somebody in your life that's betrayed you um, when you say the name judas uh it's it's not ever in terms of a nice thing it's never a compliment you judas like, like no one says that. No one names their kids. I'm going to name my kid Judas, along with, like, a girl, Jezebel. Like, Judas and Jezebel, great names. Like, Judas is a bad name, a bad person, because really Judas sort of epitomizes the picture of betrayal. And at least what I think Mark adds in the rest of the other gospels tell us about Judas, it, that we can sort of derive from the story is this, is that what it shows us is a very real, tangible humanity of Jesus. In other words, that Jesus himself knows what it's like to be betrayed. I mean, all of us, I think if you live long enough, you realize this is, this is our story. This is the life that you and I live in. All of us, to some degree, have been betrayed. But the reality is that none of us, uh, betrayal does not happen by acquaintances. Betrayal does not happen by people we don't know very well. Betrayal only happens by people that we know well, people that we invest our lives into, people that we're familiar with, people that we love, people that we would call friends. Those are the only type of people that betray us. And for some of us, we know what that feels like. It may have been in a marriage. It may have been in a relationship between a a sibling or a mother or father or maybe your child or a pastor or a leader or somebody that you've given your heart to. Betrayal is something that all of us, at some point, you live long enough, it will happen to you, and it's never easy. It's always intense and always painful, because what happens is betrayal feels so bad, because what happens is you give them your heart, you give that person a piece of yourself, a piece of your life, and what happens is they turn on you. In other words, it's a way of them basically saying, you amount to me nothing more than this, and in Jesus' case, Judas betrayed Jesus, we're told, for 30 pieces of silver, which actually was the price that was paid for the cheapest slave. Really what Judas is saying by the price that he received for betraying Jesus was that Jesus was really nothing more to him. In other words, the value of Jesus in Judas's life was really nothing more than the cost of a slave. Betrayal is painful, But at least what we can learn from this is that because Jesus is a good savior, he knows what it's like, he's familiar with what it's like, the emotions and feelings that go into being betrayed, which means, like what Hebrews describes, that he's a high priest that knows what we're going through. You can give Jesus your heart, you can trust him with your emotions, with your feelings, with your pain, with your hurt, because he knows what it feels like. He knows how raw it feels. He knows how vulnerable it makes you feel. He knows how to heal because he's been there. He's done this. So that's the first person that we see is in terms of the one who betrayed. The second thing that we'll take a look at is those who rule by the sword. And this is, like, this is like what I said earlier. It gets a little bit more nuanced in the particular storyline. It's easy for us to immediately sort of think about the bad guys. They're the ones with the sword. They're the ones that do the bad things. And in the story here, uh, Mark doesn't make the story go by that easy. What Mark does for us is he shows us in this storyline that there are several who actually utilize the sword. Now, we got to kind of give a little bit of an example of what's going on here. In verse 46, we're told in the story, it says, And then they laid hands on him, Jesus that is, and they seized him. But the one who stood by drew the sword and struck the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Really what Jesus is saying, the first group of people that we'll take a look at, there's two. The first of which are the religious leaders. These guys ruled by, and were probably ruled by, the sword. Meaning, they used the sword to coerce, but perhaps they themselves were also submitted to some sword over them. Now, in the Bible, the idea of a sword doesn't just simply mean uh, killing someone. It can mean that, but it's broader than that, and it's the idea which sort of kind of in a broader sense is the power to make demands, the power to coerce, the power to manipulate behavior. That's what it means to basically rule by the sword. So in other words, if someone comes and uses a sword to sort of manipulate you, they're not just simply threatening to kill you. What they're doing is they're threatening to get you to do something. And to the degree that you fear that sword, you'll do it. Does that make sense? If you don't fear the sword, right, if you're like Braveheart, Right? You're like, give me the sword. I'll take the sword. Why? Because he didn't fear the sword. Right? He was standing up for what he felt was righteous you know, for Scottish people. And the point of the matter is that when someone fears the sword, when the sword is important to them, then, or, in, or they're influenced by it, then they will submit to the sword. And perhaps those people will actually use some sword, or the sword, to somehow bring others into submission of their will themselves. And what Jesus is saying is that the religious leadership used the sword. So they come to Jesus with a sword to basically arrest Jesus. And Jesus, in essence, says, you guys come to me with swords to try to betray me or try to take me or to try to apprehend me. It's interesting, the particular phrase that Jesus uses in some translations, in my translations, the ESV, it says that Jesus says, you come out after me like a robber. However, in some of your other translations, you might have a lot of variety of different types of translations here. For example, like I said, the ESV says robber. Uh, The uh, King James Version basically uses the word thief. The New Revised Standard basically uses the word bandit. The NIV says, uh, am I leading a rebellion? Puts it into this question. And the New Living Translation says, basically, Jesus asks the question, are you coming out after me as if I'm a dangerous revolutionary? And This particular word that's used here, the reason why there's a lot of different ways to translate this or interpret this particular word, is because of the variety by which this word sort of finds its context. In other words, in the first century, there were those that were revolutionaries. They came onto the scene. They basically revolted against Rome. They didn't like Rome. They didn't like paying taxes. In a lot of ways, it's kind of what's happening oftentimes in, say, um, Iraq or Afghanistan, Uh, under the new regime or, for example, even in Egypt, when a new government comes in, a new order comes in, there are going to be those that say, I don't like this arrangement of government. And so therefore, there is sort of an insurgency, oftentimes grassroots, that's raised up that says, we will fight, we will resist, we will come back, we will attack. So this is perhaps to some degree what was going on. But in reality, uh, it even has a broader way of understanding. For example, uh, probably the best known example in our you know, English idea would be to think about someone like a um, uh, Robin Hood who steals from the rich in order to give to the poor. That's a form of insurgency. In other words, it's a way in which he's basically saying, I don't like what's happening amongst rich folk because they've got too much money and the poor people don't have that much. So I want to steal from the rich to give to the poor to basically redistribute. But at the end of the day, what Robin Hood's saying is that he is a law unto himself. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm not necessarily coming out as an insurgent. In other words, I'm not a dangerous revolutionary. Jesus really, in short, is saying, I am a revolutionary. I am leading a revolution, but not one that you need to fear in terms of swords and clubs and fighting and attacking. What Jesus is saying is that I am indeed a revolutionary. I am launching a revolution. I'm pushing back upon the powers that be. But the way that I'm pushing back upon the powers that be, the way that I'm confronting the powers that be, is not the way that all other powers have done so in the past. This is really important to know. If you ever studied history, one of the things I've done over the past several months, I've really kind of gotten into studying like revolutions. Just all sorts of revolutions. The revolution... Most recent, that took place in Egypt, uh, revolutions that have happened all around the world. I just find them fascinating. But what's interesting and sort of a commonality in every one of them is that even though all of them, for the most part, arise under similar conditions, there's some form of oppression, you know, whether it be the rich are in power and they're taking advantage of the poor, Or something else along those lines. Somewhere along the lines, there's sort of this grassroots work going on that someone says, we need to resist, we need to fight. And oftentimes, as, for example, in Egypt, the revolution that took place in Egypt, for a while, it was sort of headless. Meaning it didn't really have a leader at the helm, guiding, directing the whole thing. It was sort of, actually, it was a student movement that started there in Egypt. And as the thing sort of pushed forward, there had arisen sort of a leader. And so, interestingly enough, right now, what's happening in Egypt is... There was great hope once they toppled the former government. I mean, we're talking, this is just like months ago. But all of that hope was sort of dashed when the new government that kind of came in was threatening to look like the old government, just the new clothing. In other words, that revolution that set out to make things different, to make the world a better place, ended up looking a whole lot like it did in previous times. Every revolution that has ever happened in history, or I would even predict, and I'm not a prophet, or ever will happen, will basically be the same type of thing. It's just a reordering of the powers that be, and at some point, the new powers that get into place, get into position, at some point will begin to deteriorate and end up looking like the old powers that be. Acting like the old powers that be. And what Jesus is saying is that the way that I rule, the way that I lead, my revolution looks totally different. So we see that these guys come out with swords, with clubs. Jesus says, this is not the way that I lead my revolution. But the second person that basically comes on the scene that's really fascinating, I think, in the story, is the other person that comes in. So when Jesus gets arrested, they come out, they apprehend Jesus, and immediately, we're told that one of Jesus' disciples, Mark actually, Mark leaves the name anonymous. Doesn't tell us who it is. But we know, I mean, even if you've never read the passage before, and if you're somewhat familiar with some of the disciples of Jesus, you might even begin to sort of formulate in your mind a guess as to who this possibly would be. And if you guess Peter, you're, you're spot on. And in fact, John tells us that this is actually Peter. What happens in the story is that as soon as Jesus gets arrested, they come to Jesus, they apprehend Jesus, they cuff Jesus, if you will. A Peter whips out a sword, and Peter then begins to fight. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, put away your sword. He rebukes his own disciple. So here's the thing that's going on, is that what I think Mark and all of the other gospel accounts are telling us, even though Mark leaves, it's anonymous, we're just simply told later on, that really I think the picture is this, is that every person on scene, in the garden, except one, has been, to some degree, influenced or uses the sword to influence their own kingdom objectives. And Jesus is saying, this is not how my kingdom works. My kingdom doesn't advance by way of sword. My kingdom does not use coercive techniques to somehow get people to do what I want them to do. My kingdom is not a kingdom of manipulation. My kingdom is radically different. It's not of this world the way Jesus would end up later saying it. So I want to try to break this down for you guys a little bit further, to think a little bit further and deeper about the subject matter of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. So the next slide, I'll show you a little bit of a graph that I created. So uh, we'll take a look at kind of the distinctions, or at least a couple of them, in terms of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. So each kingdom has a set of tools that it uses to advance its objectives. or its values, which we'll look at in just a second here. Each kingdom has its own tools to advance its objectives. In other words, you can look at this in sort of a macro level, big, or micro level, meaning personal. We all fit somewhere within this category. Now remember, in the garden, both Peter and the religious leaders. So in other words, both black hat people and white hat people, good guys, bad guys, religious, irreligious, Devoted, hated, all of them are part of this system that's breaking down. In other words, to put it in Bible language, there's no one righteous, no, not one. All of them are somehow influenced by the system of this world and need to be rescued from it. This is what's happening. This is why Jesus is so profound in his statement by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, this is not how my kingdom works. The way that your kingdoms move forward, the way that they advance, the values that they uphold are radically different than the values of my kingdom. So, for example, the tools that oftentimes the kingdom of this world uses to advance its values are sword. Look at that in a second. Right now, it's kind of focused on that. The idea of a sword. Now, like I said earlier, it can mean the power to kill, but it can also mean the power to influence by way of of threats by way of brute force, all right? I mean, this is, this is sort of, the, I mean, we've seen this. Maybe some of you have actually even like used this. Uh, money is a very powerful sword as well. It's something that can be used. It's a tool that can oftentimes be used to somehow get one's way. Uh, deception, we see that with Judas. He uses deception. He kisses Jesus on the cheek uh, to basically, as a way of basically saying, I'm gonna deceive The the one that I've come to betray, but he uses deception. Sex is a powerful one. But ultimately, this can be summarized in sort of this general concept, which is sacrifice of others. In other words, the way the system of this world works, macro level, but also micro level, meaning your, your life, my life, personally, is that we are oftentimes influenced by this mentality of, I will sacrifice others in order to get what I want. It's just the way this world works. I mean, if you're really, truly honest with yourself, you realize that these are the tendencies that every one of us have. So it's easy for us to, you know, look at Wall Street and be like, how dare they? They're a bunch of wicked, evil people that make a lot of money. But we're just as bad. We may not have as much power as, you know, power brokers on Wall Street, but the reality is that we have our own little spheres of life by which we exercise our own little versions of the sword. I mean, the bottom line is for some of us, We use a sword because sexuality we don't have. You're not that good looking, all right? If you're trying to figure out what does that mean, you're not good looking, all right? Bottom line, or you might not have any money, and so therefore you've got brute force. You're powerful. You're strong. You're mighty. So you use strength as a means of getting your way. You throw tempers. You get angry when things don't happen the way that you want. For some of you, you are not strong, but you have a lot of money. You may be not even that intelligent, but you got a lot of cash. I've met guys like this, and they use money. Money is their means to get what they want, to advance what they want. For some, deception, others, maybe even like sex, you are gifted with really good looks. You use your sexuality to somehow get what you want, to advance what you want, and when something's not going right, you somehow know how to turn on your own personal abilities to get what you want. This is all the form of really advancing your own kingdom ways. So you can use sex as a means of getting what you want by being sexual or withholding sex, either way. They're all various aspects of the tools that are used for the world, the kingdoms of this world. And what Jesus is saying, really at the end of the day, is that these types of kingdoms of this world are ultimately self-governed, meaning they are, at the really end of it, means by which... We step on other people in order to advance our own ways. Others are sacrificed so that I might advance. Does that make sense? This is the way the world works. This is the way you and I work. I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, you realize, ah, I can identify with that. I can relate to that because that's, that's like a play out of my playbook. It's how you live. We all live like that. And again, if you're like, no, that's not me, again, go back to the Bible and realize we're talking this has sort of infected the religious system all the way to Peter, Jesus' right-hand dude. We're all part of this. This is all of us. So what we need is a radical, radical revolution to pull us out of the system of this world before it breaks. But we see with Jesus is that the tool that he uses is love. And ultimately it can be summarized as self-sacrifice. In other words, that Jesus lays his life down. He gives himself to the weak, to the vulnerable. He becomes weak. He becomes vulnerable. This is the miracle. The wealthy one makes himself impoverished. The one who really only has the true identity becomes anonymous on the cross. The one who is powerful, the almighty, all-powerful God, makes himself weak, he puts others first in order to rescue them and himself second. He sacrifices himself. Now, some of the values, obviously, of the kingdom of this world are money. You know, obviously, you don't need a whole you know, breakdown of that, what that means. Power, success, recognition, celebrity. These are values. Now, again, I think most of us are really honest with ourselves. Some of us, we're, we're lured to some of these things. Some of you right now, you might be like, I'm not interested in money. But for some of you, it might be like power. You really want power. Uh, some of you might be like, I don't really care about too much about money. You know, you buy your clothes at the thrift store and you drive like broken down cars. And you're like, I'm really cool. Like, that's, that's nice. But there are other things in your life where you want, and we all have the same tendencies in our heart where we want certain things. But the bottom line is, it's driven by a value system, something that we value And every one of them at some point breaks down. But what we see with the kingdom of God is that in the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom of God are poverty, weakness, suffering, and rejection. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're in the kingdom of God, you've got to get rid of everything and just live, you know, like St. Francis of Assisi, totally impoverished. It just means that if you have money, money doesn't have you. If you lose money, that's okay. Maybe God has something else in your life right now. It's like, if you have a job, a career that defines you, if you have that career, great, you're stoked. If you somehow lose a career because they did a little bit of reshuffling, structuring around in terms of the corporate level and they restructured you out of a job, you're not devastated. Your life's not over. You actually look at it as, hey, it's a new beginning. Maybe God's gonna give me a new job. Maybe something better. Maybe something different. Maybe something I never even dreamed about. The reason why... You can say that is because you have been taken from the kingdom of this world, which gives you an identity by all of these things, money, power, success, recognition. And it has taught you to learn how to make a place for poverty, for weakness, for suffering, for rejection. So I want to show you, just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. This is Jesus actually who says this. And I want to show you the next slide. And there's a verse out of Luke chapter 6. It's sort of a Luke's version of what's called the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount. The larger version of this is uh, actually the Gospel of Mark, chap- or Matthew chapter 5. And uh, in Luke, he sort of gives a little bit of a synopsis. He breaks it down for us. But in this particular passage, most scholars, most theologians would I agree that really what's happening here is that Jesus is actually giving sort of the breakdown of what the kingdom of God looks like. In other words, this is sort of what his administration, when he comes into power, this is what his power looks like. This is what becomes the value system of his kingdom. Now, anytime there's ever a change of guard, there's always some form of a new uh, reordering of the way things are. We see this within governments. We see this within corporate shakeups. In other words, if a new CEO comes in, uh, they've got different values maybe that are a little bit distinct, or a little bit different than the former CEO. We maybe even see this within a home. Let's say if a mother, you know, gets remarried a new uh, husband or dad comes in the family, there's a new way of exercising discipline, a new way of doing life together. It's different. It will always be different because anytime you get a new leader in, things are going to be different. There's a new value system that drives it. But Jesus' kingdom has a value system. I want to read it to you. Here's what Jesus says. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for now... You shall be satisfied. The word blessed, by the way, is sort of a, a word to describe a, a deep sense of satisfaction. Jesus then says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Verse 22, blessed are you when all people hate you, when people hate you and they exclude you. So in other words, what Jesus is basically saying is that in his kingdom, the value that he's making uh, really a, a, a path for is poverty, weakness, suffering, and rejection. In other words, in this world, his kingdom, when it breaks in, it may look like this. It may look like poverty or weakness, suffering, and rejection. In fact, it will look like it. But take a look at as it goes on a little bit further. Jesus goes on in this Sermon on the Mount, verse 24. He says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. In other words, people in this world that are rich now, that are living off of the things, off of the life, off of the goods that they have right now, They've received their consolation. It actually reminds me of that old-school Nine Inch Nails song, in fact, remade by one of my favorite singers, Johnny Cash. Uh, That song, uh, Hurt. Uh, He talks about, you know, you can have it all, my empire dirt. And I just think about, especially in the video that he does, this is an unbelievable picture. Here he is, just sort of surrounded by all this paraphernalia, and he's about to die. In fact, he's got a stroke, and in the video, his face just doesn't look the way it used to be. And to me, the picture is that, Here's all this stuff that at one point amounted to the sum total of the identity of his life. But now, it's just an empire of dirt. And This is what Jesus is saying. Is that woe to you who are rich in this world, for you have received your consolation now. In other words, this is all you get. This is, this is all that's here. It's one of the reasons why, by the way, if this is all you have, why it's easy to fight for it right now. But if this is not all you have, In this world, in other words, if there is not an identity beyond the identity that you have in this world, then you will fight without your might to contain it, to hold on to it. If this is all the wealth that you have in this world, and there's no hope, nothing beyond the wealth offered to you in this world, then you will fight with all your might to obtain it, to keep it, to hold on to it. But this is what Jesus is saying, is that to those that are in my kingdom, there's a wealth beyond this wealth. There's an identity higher than this identity in this world. There's life beyond this life. And he goes on to say, but woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And the point of the matter that he's making is that the kingdom of this world operates under this assumption that if you have money, power, success, recognition, celebrity, then you have everything. I mean, really, honestly, is that not the world that we live in? Is that what we're oftentimes told? I mean, is this not sort of the DNA of marketing? All of it? In other words, take this pill, uh, you'll get skinny, all right? And the hope is not just so that you can get skinny, but so that you can get, get girls or get guys. Uh, you know, the, if you do this particular thing, then somehow you'll get rich. It's not just so that you can have green stuff coming out of your pockets, it's so that you can get influence, so you can have power, so you can buy stuff somehow pad your life with all sorts of comforts. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that the kingdom of this world is radically incompatible with the kingdom in which I've come to give. I was listening to a message by um, Tim Keller, and in it he was actually talking about uh, professors, a history professor out of the University of Florida. His name is uh, John Somerville. And in it he was basically talking about a book uh, and an experiment that he does oftentimes with students. And one of the things that he was basically trying to do is he's trying to, um, as, a, as a historian, he was looking at sort of the value system of ancient Anglo-Saxon and ancient northern European tribes. And one of the things that he discovers is that um, for hundreds, even thousands of years, is that the main ethic that had driven sort of the Anglo-Saxon tribes and the northern European people was sort of this ethic of honor. It was sort of an honor system or an honor-valued system. In other words, if you broke the code, if you, if you broke the honor, if you dishonored the tribe, then you're worthy of death. You've got to fight to keep the honor. In other words, if another tribe down the road, you know, rapes uh, the daughter of, you know, a chieftain in that tribe, well, if this, if it wasn't just that they raped a daughter. You've totally disgraced the tribe. Now we've got to kill you. So in other words, it's not just simply fighting for a girl. It's fighting for the honor. It's fighting for the tribe's name, Tri- fighting for the dignity but what he was saying is that what had happened was when Christianity began to spread from around 500 to uh, 1500, um, the, the the monks and the preachers and the evangelists that would go around preaching the gospel to these northern European tribes and the Anglo-Saxon tribes, they basically had an ethic that was not an honor ethic. It was a charity ethic. In other words, the honor ethic basically said um, we sacrifice others in order to maintain the dignity of the tribe. The... The ethic that was a charity ethic that basically came along and says, we will sacrifice our individual comforts for your expense. In other words, we'll suffer so that you can be blessed. We'll give our lives so that you can have a life. And this is what he was saying. And in the particular experiment, experiment that he, was, he would give to his class, uh, he would oftentimes kind of ask sort of this hypothetical question. It was a question to really demonstrate how much the Christian ethic, the Christian value of Jesus giving his life to give life to other people has actually infiltrated our Western world. And in the experiment, he basically points out, you know, if there's an old lady, vulnerable, weak old lady, walking down the street and she had a purse, and you knew that in her purse was a lot of money. It's her life savings. Um, Would you tackle the old lady and, you know, mob her and take her purse? And he basically says there's two reasons why most cultures wouldn't do it. It's the ancient value system culture that basically says, huh, I don't want to you know, mob an old lady because that's, that's not, you know, that makes me look stupid. That makes me look weak. You know, you know, guy tackling an old lady, that's weak. That's just worthless. What a fool. Don't do that. And so that would actually prohibit me from tackling old lady and taking said purse. But the charity ethic basically is the exact opposite. It says... I don't wanna tackle grandma because, man, that's, that's sad. She's vulnerable, she's a poor lady. Like She needs me to protect her. In other words, she needs me or somebody to lay down their life so that she can have a life. And so the ethic in terms of charity basically says, I wanna know what she's really thinking, what she's feeling, and get into her skin in order to protect her. So he asks this question of his class, he says, okay, if you saw an old lady walking on the street, how many of you would, you know, not mug her? And, like, nobody raised their hand, of course. And then he asked, how many of you would have chosen not to mug her because it would have made you look really dumb? And he said, you know, nobody raised their hand. But how many of you would not mug the old lady because you have a sense of feeling for her? Like, gosh, it's sad. That's not nice to mug an old lady. She's vulnerable and weak. And he says, everybody would raise their hand all the time, every single time he does this experience. And what he would say is that what you're seeing is the Christian ethic at work infiltrating the world. Even though you're not a Christian necessarily, that's the ethic. That's the work taking place. That is the idea of basically putting others first in place of yourself. By the way, he actually goes on to kind of make an interesting point that this is kind of to some degree what happened with the Crusades because this oftentimes gets brought up and they're like, well, how then can you explain the Crusades and things of that nature? He has a very interesting point that he says that what happened is the history of the Crusades actually comes from the conversion of many of these Western or Anglo-Saxon tribes, or should say Northern European and Anglo-Saxon tribes, coming to Christ, but at the same time sort of retaining the element of honor. So, for example, when Islam began to spread and they took over Jerusalem, that was a slap in the face of... Anglo-Saxon, Northern European Christians. In other words, it shamed them. They were frustrated by the fact that somebody would actually take something that they felt belonged to them. So out of honor, they pushed back and they killed. So what he points out is that really what you see in things like the Crusades and whatnot is sort of a fusion, a hybrid version of the Christian ethic, trying to mingle the ethic of the world. So let me try to break this down for you in terms of modern language. Anytime, anytime, we pick up the sword to try to attack, to fight, to get our way, to be manipulative, to use sex, to use power, to use manipulation, to use politicking. We're operating in accordance with the way that the system of this world works. You could be a Christian and do that, but you're not demonstrating the ways of Christ. Here's the point. This is why we need to be rescued. This is why... The reality is, is that sin and our being infected by it goes far deeper than what any of us can care to even oftentimes admit. Now, notice, I didn't get into any like issues of like, well, what about issues of self-defense? And is Jesus teaching pacifism here? You know, again, this is one of the parts of Scripture that oftentimes people point to and say what Jesus is actually doing here is teaching pacifism. I don't necessarily think that, but here's the point. Is that the reality is, is Jesus is saying that the way the system of this world works is by a set of values that are incongruent and incompatible with his world values or with his values, and they will use tools to protect those values and to establish those values. And the tools that Jesus uses are radically different. This is what it means to basically point out that the kingdom of this world is different than the kingdom of God. The kingdom of this world has these values. The kingdom of God has the tool of love and tool of self-sacrifice and values others over themselves. So the final thing that I really want to finish with is really this thought. Because really what Jesus is saying is that you don't need swords to arrest me. But your swords can't stop me either. In other words, I am a revolutionary, but I'm not dangerous the way that you would define dangerous. I will change the world. I will change hearts, but I will not change them by the power of the sword, by the power of manipulation, by just the power of power. What Jesus is really saying is that I'm not just going to put new people in place, but a new type of power in place. This is what he's basically pointing out, which leads me to the very last thing that I really want to finish up on is this thought. Take a look at those who get away. Because in a story, what we see in verse 50 is we're told that the disciples slip away, they get out, and then we're told in verse 52, kind of a very interesting passage. Uh, pick it up at verse uh, 51. It says, Then a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Now, scholars have sort of debated as you know, who this is, and some have suggested maybe it's Mark. We really don't even know. It's possible it's maybe Mark. It's kind of an old-school tradition. But the point of the matter is that it's just an interesting Side note, it's just a detail that doesn't seem to even play into the storyline at all. Why would Mark add this here? At least, in the most minimal sense, because Mark was there, or Mark heard about it. It's just, it's just a detail. But there may be something there more to that particular point as well. And there is a New Testament scholar, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright, he hints at, the thought that maybe one of the reasons why Mark may have put this particular story here is he's basically painting this picture is that one guy, at least along with the others, ends up fleeing the garden naked. Now, nakedness in the Bible always is a sign of shame. I mean, I realize in our culture, it's not necessarily viewed as shame, it's just like spring break. Like, oh, naked people, spring break. Um, In the Bible, nakedness is oftentimes viewed as shameful. And the picture that N.T. Wright points out that actually maybe hinted at goes all the way back to the garden. Because in the original garden, we see two people fleeing the garden naked, leaving. And what he suggests is that really what's happening here is a trial. In this trial is a sword, the power of politics, the power of kingdom, not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of this world. It's playing. It's moving forward. It's threatening. It's threatening to apprehend and to seize Jesus. It's threatening to take Peter, James, and John, and the other leaders that might have been there in the garden. It's threatening to take these guys. And every single one of them, in the midst of this trial, they buckle in their knee. They leave. They flee. They're afraid. They're just like you and I. But one. Jesus doesn't flee. In fact, he even goes so far as to say, this is... Is what must be fulfilled in the scripture. In other words, there's a script. It's been written long ago, and what's happening right now is fulfilling everything. Jesus basically gives his hands over and says, "Take me." What the picture is here is Jesus is not out of control. He's totally in control. He gives himself to those who threaten him with the sword. He's not afraid. He's not afraid of the sword that they offer. Even though every one of his disciples fled because they were. They're just like you and I. But what we see here in the garden that's absolutely amazing is that Jesus is not failing the test like his disciples. Jesus is succeeding. Even though Jesus faces a far greater sword. You say, what are you talking about? In the garden, the original garden, the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden, and once they sinned, God banished them from the garden. Once they ran out naked, ashamed for what they had done, God basically placed an angel there at the front entrance of the garden with a flaming sword, and the flaming sword basically spoke of the justice of God. In other words, no one can enter back into the garden except by going through The sword. The sword must confront anybody who chooses to go back in. This is the real sword that Jesus is confronted with. And Jesus doesn't buckle at the knee with the little swords that they bring, even though his disciples did, because Jesus knew the sword that he was about to face. But here's the point that I think Mark really wants us to understand, that what we see here is a picture of Jesus In the storyline, he's bound so that his disciples go free. The picture is that Jesus himself substitutes himself. He takes upon himself the suffering. Takes upon himself the judgment. Takes upon himself the shame, the humiliation, the anonymity, the poverty, the brokenness, the crushing, the exclusion. So that you and I who live that all day long can be given a name rather than excluded embraced rather than impoverished been given amount of wealth come from god if you see jesus only as a great picture of how you should live your life then his example will crush you because you can't live like this none of us do You can't, none of us are that selfless. We're like, you know, I'm going to go love people with all my heart. I'm going to sacrifice everything I can for them. You won't do that. You can't do that. Even a father. I mean, I'm a dad. I got two kids. I fail even with my own kids, and I love them more than any of you. I love you guys, but I love my kids way more than you guys. And there's things, I fail with them. And if I fail with the ones that I love the most in my life, the ones that are the easiest for me to give myself to more than anybody else in this life, I'm gonna fail all the time. But what we see, if Jesus is just simply an example, then his example will crush you. But if you see Jesus as a substitute, putting himself in your place, then he'll be a savior to you. You'll see him as a savior. You'll see him as one who bears your sin, who bears your shame, who bore your guilt so that you can go free. You'll see him as one who is bound for you so that you who are bound in this life Bound by the sword of power. Bound by the sword. By the influence of sexuality gone awry. Or bound by all sorts of things that are part of this world system. Using you. Coercing you. That you can actually be free from that. Here's the beauty of all this. This is why we need to be free. Because people that are free. Are no longer under the influence of the sword of this world. Meaning the threats the lies, the manipulation that oftentimes can come at us, or the things that oftentimes that we may even use, we may even be skilled at using them. Once we're free from those things, for example, power doesn't become something that we manipulate and use to abuse other people. In other words, me first, you, someone I step on. In other words, we can now use power as a means of sacrificing myself to bless other people. Use power to raise up those who are really truly broken. You can use money rather than it being something which you're mounted up and you use it as a way of manipulation. Or if you don't have money, you always just dream about having money. If you have a lot of money, you live all your might with all your energy, somehow providing security for it, protecting it, guarding it, being stingy over it. But if you're free, money becomes an object, a tool now to use. You can be generous with it. Use it for the glory of God, use it to honor other people. Other people will look at you and think, You're crazy. What are you doing? You need money, and you can say, of course I need money to pay my bills, but money doesn't own me. I own it. I'm free. People may think you're mad, you're crazy, but really, you're free. It's a different kingdom. It's a different administration that's taking a hold of your heart. And I want to finish just by reading two quotes. I'm going to have the guys coming up, and they'll close us in a song of worship, but as they're coming up, I want, I want to just read you a couple quotes from a couple people that I um, thought maybe you guys might be encouraged by and as I was just kind of thinking about what they had to say, the reality is, is nobody can say the things that these guys say unless a different administration, a different kingdom has come into their life and set them free from the administration and the kingdom of this world. Nobody. Um, last slide, the first person is Bonhoeffer. Some of you guys are familiar with him. Um, he was arrested and ultimately killed just very shortly before World War II ended. He was a German who was part of a resistance against Hitler. Um, imagine one of the greatest swords of this past hundred years. Uh, Bonhoeffer said this just before he was executed. This is the end. For me, it's the beginning of life. Who can say that? Unless you know there's a life after this life. Unless you know that there's wealth beyond this wealth. Unless you know that there's a power beyond the power of Hitler. You can't say that. Or Jim Elliott, some of you are familiar with him, who's a missionary, he went down to, I believe it was Ecuador, and to go evangelize a bunch of just Indians that were total savage, headhunters. And ultimately he would be killed by these guys. And it was during the '50s, actually made you, know, national headlines, and it was a really big ordeal in our country. Um, but prior to him being sacrificed, he actually said this statement, which is really powerful. Some of you may have heard of it. Uh, he says this, "He is no fool who gives." But he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Who can say these things? Well, the answer is, if you are in this kingdom of this world, and this kingdom of this world owns you, and you use it as a means to advance your kingdom, you can't say that. Because the money that you have right now is the money that you will ever have. You might have hopes of getting a little bit more at some point by investments, or stealing, or stepping on someone else in order to advance your deal. But at some point, you will die, and you won't have any. You'll lose it all. You will lose every last bit of it. In the book of Daniel, there's this scenario where uh, one of these kings is sort of having this big, massive party. In fact, most scholars believe it's like this big, massive orgy. So without using sanctified imagination too much, just imagine a big party that's pretty like, rank, uh, pretty nasty. And uh, these guys are just... Party and living it up and having a big orgy and it's pretty nasty, pretty disgusting. And Daniel comes in and basically reads and interprets some writing that's on the wall that was written by this hand. And in short, what the hand basically says is that your days are numbered, your kingdom days will come to a close. In other words, here was a kingdom that was advancing. It was a great party, but that party was coming to an end. And in just a few short hours, that not only party would come to an end, but that kingdom, that reign, that entire administration would come to an end, and a new kingdom would come and take his place. And what you need to understand is that has poignancy for every one of us. Because every single one of us have hopes and have placed and anchored our hopes in something. This is not an issue of like, well, I got faith, but others are like, I don't really believe. You believe. Every one of you has faith in something in this room. In fact, I would even go so far as to push it further and say every one of you in this room somehow, some way, are religious. You have faith in something, you trust something. It may be your own fame, it may be your own money, maybe on your good looks, maybe your own strength, we all believe something. We all have faith in something. But the reality is, is that the kingdom of this world is numbered. It stays days are numbered. A new administration, a new kingdom is coming. A kingdom that has no end. A kingdom that's good. Because it's a king that doesn't come bearing the sword upon evildoers. It's a king that comes bearing the sword for evildoers. It's a king that comes not coming to shed the blood of those who are wicked. It's a king who comes... Who will have his blood shed for the wicked. And if you see Jesus as a substitute for you. Because he loves you. This is a king that you can give your heart to. Your life to. Your hopes to. Your dreams to. You can trust him with everything. Your future. Your money. Your sexuality. Your hopes. Your dreams. Your children. Your spouse. Everything. You can give everything to him. Because he will not crush you. A God that would go to such extreme to rescue you is a God that you can give and trust your whole life to. And that, if you do that, will change you. You'll be a new person. You'll be free. You'll be a person that will be able to then go out and use your money as a means to bless other people the way Jesus blessed you. You You'll be able to go out and use your time as a means to invest in other people's lives who are suffering, who are hurting, who are struggling, to help repair them, to help bless them. You're free. We're going to sing. Close. We have communion in the back if you'd like to partake of it. We have rugs in the front if you'd like to sit down before Jesus, pour out your heart before him. We have some people that will be available over by the cross, we'll be happy to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you guys right now. Let's sing, let's pray, let's confess sin to Jesus, let's take communion, let's cry out to him as a good God. God, right now, thank you that you are a God that has demonstrated clearly your love for us. So God, even now we want to trust and commit, submit our hearts to you. God, if we have questions, we pray that we would just bring those questions to you, even though there's so many things that we just don't know, we don't understand. We don't want the mountain of things that we don't understand to eclipse the things that we can't understand. That Jesus, you love us. That You demonstrated for us something so profound on the cross that you took the sword for us. Not the sword of this world, but the sword of the Father his justice He bore for us that's what we deserved. so God I pray right now that you would just draw our hearts into love and relationship and trust to you make us a people God that would bring glory and honor to you